If you can, turn in your Bibles uh, to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This morning I will be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. And I'd invite you, if you are able, to please stand for the reading of God's Word. James, a servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given you. But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up and the rich in being brought low because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. It is the same way with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. This is the word of God. No, 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 no. All right, if you're a guest this morning, it's all right. Uh, When we say this is the word of God, we respond by saying, thanks be to God, as though we were thankful. (laughs) Amen? This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Grab a seat. Thank you. From this passage this morning, I'll preach from the title, Single-Minded Faith. Single-Minded Faith. I wonder if you have ever found yourself in a situation where it feels as though everything in your life has been turned upside down. Uh, For for some uh, of our children this morning, maybe it's going to a new school or starting a new school year. Maybe it's moving into a new neighborhood, starting a new relationship. Uh, Whatever it is, the things that you used to be able to count on no longer feel particularly useful to you. The assumptions you could previously rely on no longer feel trustworthy. Your life feels backwards or turned inside out. You're scrambling to keep up. Well, this morning we begin a series of sermons from the New Testament letter of James. And in this letter, James, who was likely the brother of Jesus wrote to Jewish Christians whose lives had been seriously complicated, turned upside down, turned inside out by following Jesus. And in these opening verses, James encouraged his readers to have faith that God would generously meet all of their needs. You see, what these Jewish Christians had found, and what some of us have found as well, 
is that following Jesus leads us into some strange situations. As we follow this Jesus, the wisdom of this world no longer makes as much sense. The justice of this world is no longer adequate. The righteousness that this world offers is but a poor reflection of the righteousness we have found in Jesus Christ. Jesus turns us inside out and upside down. Jesus rearranges our priorities. He dismantles our assumptions and he purifies our desires. In other words, following Jesus makes us strange, weird even, peculiar. It seems like the Christians that James wrote to were were starting to wonder how could they sustain this countercultural way of life. After all, it's not easy to stand out. It's tiring to swim against the flow. And so to this very real experience, James offers us a very simple word of encouragement. We follow the peculiar way of Jesus by faith. Now, to make this very simple point, James does a couple of things in this passage. First, he gives us two examples of how following Jesus makes us strange. Second, he describes the kind of faith, the type of faith, that sustains a strange Jesus-following people. We follow the peculiar way of Jesus by faith. And in this passage, trials and wealth are two examples of how following Jesus makes us strange. These two examples bookend our passage. James begins with trials. James is blunt. He says, here's who the letter's from. Here's who it's to. Greetings, period. Literally just one word of salutations. And then it's trials. He just dives right in, which we will find in the next few weeks is kind of James's style. He doesn't have much time for small talk. He's right, Allison. He's right down to business. And he says here that these are any kind of trials. In other words, this includes everything. This would include the the internal temptations that you and I experience that would lead us away from obedience to Christ, as well as the external suffering, experiences of injustice, marginalization, oppression. James is counting all of this as trials, Now, life is full of trials. Every single one of us knows that. What makes what James is saying importantly different for us this morning is that we are to consider those trials as an experience, an opportunity for joy. James says that that trials of any kind are an opportunity for us to consider it nothing but joy. Now, James is not saying that trials are good. 
In fact, James has a very finely honed sense of righteousness and justice, of right and wrong, as we will see. So he's not describing trials, temptations, oppression as in any way being inherently good. Rather, that we are to respond to those situations with joy. How does that sound to you? Crazy. I mean, the churchy people here are like, that sounds okay, yes. But the honest people in the room today, that doesn't sound so good, does it? I'd suggest that we are used to responding to trials with at least two different instincts. The first we would call the, the stiff upper lip instinct, or maybe the, the ignore the haters instinct. I'm okay. I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to keep going. You, you can't do anything to me. And the other instinct is to, is to create the space necessary to, to process the trials, to experience the trials, to, to get in touch with the trauma that we have experienced. And can I say that both of those instincts are actually good. We need both of those instincts. But James is talking about something categorically different here. He says when we experience trials as followers of Jesus, we respond, in part at least, with joy. Not with happiness, but with that deep-seated joy that comes from knowing that God loves us and that nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God. That's joy. Can I suggest to you this morning that that will make you strange? That that response, that instinct to trials will make you weird, peculiar. Uh, the other side of this passage, that towards the end, we find a different example, the example of wealth. And if I could summarize verses 9 through 10, uh, James is saying that those in humble circumstances, not a humble disposition, not the opposite of pride, but, but literal humble circumstances who are experiencing poverty, who have been marginalized, those in humble circumstances should glory in their high position, and those who are rich should glory in their humiliation. Could there be anything more backward to the American way of life than glorying in our humble circumstances and understanding that the experience and the position of wealth is a kind of humiliation? Some of our, uh, our students went back to school this week, and if you are like me, you maybe have been paying attention to, you know, who had a new backpack? Who had the new sneakers? Whose parents dropped them off in a, in a pretty good-looking car? It's baked into us at a pretty early age. We breathe an air that, that elevates wealth, that looks askance. At humble circumstances. James is going to talk a lot more to us about wealth in this book, so I'm not going to say a whole lot about it now. I just want you to notice the upside-down nature of how James positions our response to wealth. John Christostom was a, an early Christian preacher, and sometime in the 300s, he preached a few sermons about wealth. And, and let me read to you just a couple of sentences that he said in one of these sermons. He preached, If we are to tell the truth, the rich man is not the one who has collected many possessions, 
but the one who needs few possessions. And the poor man is not the one who has no possessions, but the one who has many desires. Just as we would not consider a person healthy who is always thirsty, let us do the same in the case of wealthy people. Let us never consider these people healthy who are always yearning and thirsting after somebody else's property. Let us not think that they enjoy any abundance. But that's not quite how we've been formed to think in this country, is it? If we are honest today, we want to be wealthy. We want to have enough and then a little bit more than enough. You know how I know? You and I don't tell stories of our brushes with those in humble circumstances. But every single one of us has a story about our brush with wealth, about our brush with celebrity. All of us have stories of finding ourselves in circumstances where, oh my gosh, you should have seen the food that they served or how nice this place was. I got to sit in first class, Jason, on my flight. We all have stories about encounters with privilege and wealth. James says that the way of Jesus is to boast in our humble circumstances. We follow the peculiar way of Jesus by faith. How James tells Christians to respond to trials and wealth are just two examples of how incredibly strange the way of Jesus is. And James will give us more examples in this letter about the odd, the weird, the strange nature of following Jesus. I I want us to consider this morning, have we experienced the way of Jesus as strange? Does it feel peculiar to you? Do you feel out of step with those around you? Ask yourself, What is my response? What is my instinctual response to trials, to wealth? Do I rejoice in trials? Do I glory in my humble circumstances? We follow the peculiar way of Jesus by faith. And and James suggests to us that that the kind of faith that will sustain us on this way is a single-minded faith. Say single-minded. Now, in in the middle of this passage, in verses 6 through 8, we we see this image of single-minded faith. James writes, but ask in faith. Never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now, some of you are familiar with that that image of being double-minded, but but it actually appears as though James was the one who invented that phrase. It, It wasn't used, as best we can tell, anywhere else before James used it to describe this particular experience of doubt. Now, Now, for James, faith is incredibly important to discipleship. But it's a particular kind of faith. This is not a passive faith. This is not a a, a faith that stays in your head. This is not a, a faith where I mentally assent to a list of beliefs. For James, faith is visible. For for James, faith is active. For James, faith can be seen and touched and experienced. 
And then James talks about doubt. And he uses uh, uh, the metaphor, the image of a wave to describe doubt. Now let's be clear about what James is not saying here. James is not saying that people of faith do not have doubt. Amen? We all have doubts. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. And we don't live by certainty. We live by? Amen. So there will be moments and seasons of doubt for all of us. That's not what James is talking about. And the reason we know this is because he uses this example of of a wave. But this is not the kind of wave that you and I are used to on a nice, pleasant summer day on Lake Michigan where the waves are slowly, gently moving in on the shore, putting us to sleep on the warm sand. Uh, One commentator describes this kind of wave as the violent agitation of the sea. So don't picture a peaceful day on the shore of Lake Michigan. Picture a toddler in a bathtub with a lot of energy. Moving around, Doran, back and forth. You've never had this experience, I know. It's just me. It's just my family. Where the waves start to go back and forth, unpredictably crashing over the side of the bathtub, soaking the bath mat, pouring out into the hallway. It's just me. It's just my experience. That's the image of the wave. It's not moving in one direction. It's not faithful and predictable. It's back and forth, unable to decide, unable to make up its mind. Another way to think about this double-mindedness is is one of the ways my parents used to tease me when I was a high school student, and they're here, they can uh, testify to this. They, They would say, David really likes to keep his options open. They would say, David, what what are your plans this weekend? I said, well, it could be this or might do this. And they said, well, we need to make our plans. I said, well, I just want to keep my options open. That's the the sense of being double-minded. Not singularly focused on anything. Maybe going this way for a little bit, then this way for a little bit, leaving that door open and maybe that door open as well. What does double-mindedness in our faith look like? Well, kids, kids, Pastor Peter kind of, uh, Pastor Pete kind of uh, gave an example here. Uh, maybe you've been praying for some, some new friends. But then you get to school and, 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 the, and the, the kid, the student that everybody else is ignoring, you, you ignore too. That, that would be an example of being double-minded. And for others of us, uh, being double-minded in our faith might look like committing ourselves to a life of simplicity and generosity in the pattern of Jesus before stumbling into a job that pays us way more than we ever could have dreamed making. And now all of a sudden the stuff that used to seem like extravagant luxury seems to be practical necessities. Maybe a double-mindedness in faith looks like trusting Jesus with your sexual desires until, you know, enough years have passed. And you're single a little longer than you expected being. And then you meet somebody who's, you know, good enough to give yourself to. Or double-mindedness might look like reducing the radical politics of Jesus to the predictable partisan opinions shared by your friend group. A double-mindedness might look like talking a really good Jesus game on social media while simultaneously holding on to that grudge or refusing to forgive that person. Double-mindedness in faith might look for some of us like speaking loudly for racial justice until you make your way home on Thanksgiving where all of a sudden, John, you get real quiet. 
James says the kind of faith that will sustain you and I along the peculiar way of Jesus is a single-minded faith. It's not about the amount of faith, how much faith you have, how strong your faith is. It's taking whatever amount of faith you happen to have today and with a single-mindedness, placing it in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. That's the kind of faith that will sustain us. So take, again, the example of wealth. Single-minded faith lets us see how temporary wealth actually is. James says it's like a flower that withers in the heat. Single-minded faith in Jesus will allow us to see our society's obsession with riches as the obscene joke that it actually is. And because our faith... Our single-minded faith is in Jesus, the humble rabbi who didn't even have a home to call his own. We, too, can find joy in our humble circumstances. Or take, for example, the, 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 or take the, the example of, of trials. James says that, that trials test our faith and that when our faith is tested, we grow in endurance, which makes us mature and complete. And mature and complete people are able to see that they lack nothing in Jesus Christ. That's good news, right? Let me say it again. That, that, that trials test our faith. That when our faith is tested, we grow in maturity and completeness and mature people are able to see that they lack nothing in Jesus Christ. Without faith, trials can range from a simple inconvenience to absolutely devastating our lives. But with single-minded faith placed in our Lord Jesus, we actually expect to grow spiritually because of trials which leads to maturity where we can testify, I lack nothing in Jesus Christ. Are you keeping your options open this morning? Are there places in your life where you're like, oh, let me just keep that door cracked a little bit. Jesus, I'll give you 95%. I'll give you 65%, but I got to keep this option open. Be honest with yourself this morning. Hear the invitation to single-minded faith. This is how we follow the peculiar way of Jesus. Let me end here. Throughout history, right up until our very moment today, we, we see an unfortunate tendency for Christians who want to be acceptable to their societies. We want to be relevant we don't want to be misunderstood. Nobody wants to be misunderstood. But as James makes super clear right from the beginning, followers of Jesus will often appear strange in this world. Let me just, let me stop for just a second. That means like in a visible way. That doesn't mean like you believe some strange things in your heart. Because in a minute, we're going to celebrate communion. And that's a strange thing to believe. That salvation came through a crucified Savior. That we, are, that we are covered and saved by the blood of Jesus. That's a strange thing to believe. But what James is talking about is a visible strangeness. It's, it's, it's that, that you, could, you could afford to do that thing. But you decided not to because somebody in your church family couldn't afford groceries. Do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah. 
It's that, it's that your, your, your disposable income is determined by your neighbor's need. It's the visible stuff. It's when, when everybody else is following the same trajectory in life, you step off that conveyor belt to live in a very radically different way. By how you treat your neighbor, by how you spend your money, by how you spend your time, by what your, by, by what your, your, your friendship network looks like. That's the stuff that James is talking about. Are you with me this morning? Thank you for the three of you who are with me this morning. If we don't understand this, the rest of James is going to go right over our heads. We have to understand that for James and for the early Christians, they expected to live out of step with the status quo. And we can look back in history and we go, well, of course they need to leave, uh, live a sta- uh, outside of the status quo because we can see everything that was wrong in their society from the vantage point of history. Do we believe that our culture is any more Christian? Then how are you and I out of step? How are we peculiar? As we place, this is the amazing thing, as we place our faith solely in Jesus, as we close the doors on the alternatives offered to us by our world, we will find... This is the gospel. We will find that what appears strange to this world is in fact the most natural way to live in the presence of our Savior. Is that good news? The thing that from one vantage point seems crazy, seems, 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 seems so strange, so weird, in the presence of Jesus becomes the most natural way to live. Of course I'm going to give away my money like that. Of course, I'm going to prioritize that friendship. Of course, I'm going to let that person into my life. We, after all, are the people who proclaim that salvation entered the world through a helpless child of a young couple fleeing an oppressive regime. Of course, we're going to be strange. We worship the Lord who humbled the wealthy and who elevated the poor and the overlooked. Of course we're going to be strange. You and I, if we follow Jesus, has sworn our allegiance to the peasant whose only possession worth mentioning was the garment they stripped him of at his execution. Of course we're going to be strange. Of course, our discipleship to Jesus will make us peculiar. How could it not? But as we follow Jesus by faith, placing whatever faith we have in his hands, we're going to start to experience the mystery proclaimed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God chose what is foolish in the world. To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Things that are not to reduce to nothing. Things that are. So sister and brother, do not be afraid to be seen as foolish or weak. Do not be afraid to be perceived as low and despised 
or strange or peculiar. For these are what our God has chosen to testify to His Son. The one whose shameful death secured for you and for me our eternal, glorious life. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God.